Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways big and small to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Scott Riley, too. Let's move the needle. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Moving the Needle. Have you ever been curious about how teaching evolves over time? How and why has lecturing changed since the times of Plato and Florence Nightingale? Is it simply responses to outward pressures like COVID or the advancement of technology? Are new pedagogies and teaching ideas ever tested in a rigorous process? If so, what does that process look like? How do educators experiment with education? And just as important, how do they verify if it's worth implementing? I'm thrilled to discuss these ideas with two returning guests, Dr. Violet Kulo and Dr. Eric Belt. Dr. Kulo is an associate professor and program director for the MS in Health Professions Education program in UMB's graduate school. She was responsible for overseeing curriculum mapping, medical student assessment, and program evaluation in the preclinical curriculum. Dr. Kulo's research interests include instructional design, learner engagement, student assessment, and evaluation of innovative educational programs. She is passionate about preparing competent, effective, and exemplary interprofessional health professions educators, leaders, and researchers. Dr. Belt is a Senior Academic Innovation Specialist at UMB and has served as an instructional designer virtually and on campus for various community colleges across the United States. In these analogous roles, he has taught courses and workshops centered on instructional design, interaction, engagement, and communication with technology. Dr. Belt has a passion for advancing the scholarship of teaching and learning through the course design, instructional communication, and faculty professional development. Welcome, Dr. Kulo, and welcome, Dr. Belt. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here. Wonderful. Uh, I'm really thrilled to get into this topic. So I want to start from the base of what I think is this grand mountain when we think about education research and ask, in broad terms, uh, what is education research? research. Uh, Violet, can you start? Thank you for that question. So education research is the scientific field of study that examines education and learning processes, and it seeks to describe, understand, and explain how learning takes place. So it develops new knowledge about teaching and learning, which eventually leads to the improvement of educational practice. And just to add, to elaborate on that some more, there, there are four types of knowledge that education research contributes to. So first one is like description. So for instance, describing an, a natural or social phen phenomenon in education. Then the second one is improvement, which are looking at uh, how effectiveness of interventions in the classroom. The third is prediction, which is the ability to predict predict a phenomenon. For, for instance, you can do a prediction of how one exam course will predict maybe the student's performance on a license exam. And the fourth one is explanation. So this one seeks to explain an educational phenomenon. And here it entails like um, testing, uh, formulating a hypothesis, testing the hypothesis on, in a real or simulated situation, then collecting data to determine whether the uh, they correspond to the hypothesis. So the fourth one entails like um, testing a theory. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And to build off of that a little bit, you mentioned testing a theory. Since this idea of education 
research revolves around how to better educate individuals or to, to test and understand models of education. Are there any core theories as to how individuals learn? Are there any learning theories that may help in constructing these models or these hypotheses? Uh, Eric, can you speak to that at all? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's, um, I think, learning theories have been around for a while, centuries even, Aristotle, Plato, right? You know, even in modern day, we talk about the Socratic method, right? So Socrates, his learning theory might have been um, that we, that humans learn best through dialogue um, and that reflecting on, you know, conversation or asking questions and debating with the answers is how people learn best. But, you know, you fast forward through time up until modern day and we might have, I'd say in the last hundred years or so, it's probably more common for people to refer to in the educational research space um, to names such as like Dewey, uh, Piaget, Pavlov, Vygotsky, Skinner, um, Watson, Montessori, uh, you know, philosophers and researchers like that. Um, and, you know, when it comes to what they sort of contributed, they each had different views that enough people could get behind and support. Um, and keep publishing on it. And, you know, some of the things that they talk about are probably how we refer to them now or know them now is behaviorism, right? That's a learning theory, stimulus response, essentially. That's Pavlov's dog, right? Behaviorism. Um, constructivism, which is, uh, you know, that learning's constructed. It's a social pro, I mean, you can get social constructivism, but it's that it's a negotiated process. Um, cognitivism, that's a learning theory that just talks about how the, the human brain is a computer and that we just are sort of like accessing different files, recalling those things as we learn. And there's all sorts of other ones, you know, humanism, human is at the center, learner-centered instruction, things like that. Um, more recently, connectivism, that's a new one. It's probably some academic, academic debate going on there with that one. But the idea is just that learning happens in the sort of networked nodes of our technologies, right? So kind of abstract thought there. But yeah, so, you know, all of these, I think, are just um, influential to educational research and kind of how we sometimes base our, our studies. Excellent. Yeah. So I want to connect those two ideas, starting with education research and learning theory and come to this focused point of what components of education are commonly examined? Since we talked about this core idea behind learning theory, I'm wondering, uh, Violet, can you tell me, you know, what is commonly examined in education research and what unique aspects of education can be researched? So just a few that I could mention as a, like, um, for instance, student motivation. So we want to see what things motivate students to uh, excel in the classroom. Then another thing is maybe student engagement. So for instance, if you have uh, an instructor has primarily been using um, lecture and maybe they change their uh, instructional strategy, they use maybe team-based learning or problem-based learning, then you, you may want to, to measure how whether that instructional strategy is engaging students and look at uh, maybe, for instance, student scores with the lecture, best, best uh, instruction 
or the uh, active learning strategy. Then an another aspect is also like technology. So if, if you use a technology in your classroom, implement technology for the first time, you want to see whether that has made a difference, has facilitated uh, instruction. So also, uh, it's, and it's not only like classroom uh, research, it, it can also be about leadership. So you want to see like, uh, like education leaders, whether they impact, uh, like instructors self-efficacy. So there are different things that you can research in, in the classroom and outside of the classroom that advance the knowledge in education. Yeah, so I think there's a really important point there that I just want to highlight again, that it's not just Education research is not just about what happens in the classroom. We learn in a lot of different ways from different environments and through different mediums. So it's cool to hear about how what we're talking about today can be applied to pretty much anything that involves education and learning, right? That, that's correct. And one of the things also I would like to add also, it, it's not, you can also, uh, like Eric talked about the learning theories, you could also use the, those in practice. For instance, like uh, We've seen these uh, articles that have come out like in clinical practice, instructors using something like cognitive load during procedural skills to see whether it affects like um, trainees in, in, uh, in, the, in the hospital, whether, you know, when, when they're doing like uh, colonoscopies, they measure the cognitive load when they're doing the procedure. So it, it, can only it can also apply outside of the classroom in the clinic when students are out there on their rotations. Yeah, I think that's a that's a wonderful example. And this brings up a a really important question that we've kind of been touching on bit by bit, building up, climbing further up this mountain. Um, Eric, I wanted to ask you about how building a study would look. You know, we're we're talking about researching education, researching methods, researching technologies, learning theories. That's a lot of different things to consider. And I know this is a a question in and of itself that could last the whole episode, but what would you say are the basic building blocks of uh, constructing a study? Are there tools that we can use? Is there a framework? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, all of the above, I would say. But, you know, it, it sort of starts with, I would say, an interest, right? A curiosity. We want to know more, right? And once we have that in our mind, we're curious about something. I think the first step has always got to be Go to the literature. What has already been studied about this? What's already been written about it? What do we already know? You know, and I, I tend to use, you know, I'll use different databases and search tools with the library, or, but you know, most often it's like Google, Google Scholar, right? Just to get a sense of what's been written about this, what's out there, how, what's the most cited resource about this? And then I might take the resources section from that page and find other sources where they were coming from. So you got to go to the literature and, and see what's already been done. And, you know, when it comes to educational research, it could be like your idea doesn't have to be complicated. You know, it could be that you're just curious about, I don't know, wearable technology, Fitbits, smart glasses, you know, what's been going on with those in online courses and in higher ed. So I got my three key search terms right? Fitbits, online course, higher ed, or post-secondary education, or something like that. And you just kind of see what's out there, you know? And then I think what happens is there's an opportunity there, once you start researching the literature, to see what other researchers have called for in terms of further research. So they're basically, they had, your idea might not be exact, 
right? But it's similar. And, you know, someone once said there's no such thing as an original idea. So the idea is just that some, this idea has been out there. It's, you know, and people have approached studying it in different ways and they're giving you suggestions. Like we need to look at it this way. You know, and sometimes it's a mixed methods approach, a more qualitative approach, but there's just a call to action to sort of keep the line of inquiry going. And I think far too often that sort of drops off where people are like, you know, my idea is more unique. I, I'm, I'm doing something that's, you know, out of the box. So I want to study it from scratch. And it just kind of foregoes a lot of work that's already been done. So, um, you know, go to the literature, construct a study. And as far as tools, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I tend to go to books for these sorts of things. I really like Creswell and Creswell's research design, qualitative, quantitative, and mixed method approaches. I also frequently go to Creswell and Poth, qualitative inquiry and research design, because I'm a qualitative researcher. And with those, you know, there's other sources that are very qualitative in nature. Uh, you know, Lincoln and Guba, um, Saldana, Miles Huberman, Saldana. Like, there's just big names in qualitative research that all of which sort of provide different roadmaps for the type of inquiry that you might want to or use or follow. Wonderful. I want to pick out a couple of terms there. Uh, so I'm a scientist by training. And so I heard mixed methods, qualitative and quantitative. Can you, can either of you just elaborate a little bit on what like a qualitative method for education research would look like in a quantitative method? Because I'm thinking to myself, well, how do I run an experiment where my students are the sample? Well, I, you know, I think that what you're describing there would be quantitative, um, you know, in terms of a quantitative approach, right? We might have an experiment or a hypothesis and a null hypothesis, and we might, you know, have a control group, group of 50 students here in this classroom, group of 50 students online, and then we, you know, have a question, we answer the question, we run some stats on it and do an analysis. Um, in terms of qualitative, there's typically around five, probably maybe generally accepted qualitative research approaches, and they are uh, grounded theory, phenomenology, uh, case study, ethnography, and probably a narrative, something that's more like literary or, you know, writing a story of sorts. So, and with all of those, you know, qualitative approaches, there are certain things um, that are required of them to be considered, uh, you know, a grounded theory study and things like that. Um, and then mixed methods, you, you know, it's, it can happen in a, a couple of different ways. Um, you, you know, and I think there's, uh, if you think about it in a sequence, right, you can have an exploratory, uh, sequential mixed method study or an explanatory sequential mixed method study. So an exploratory is I'm going to start with my qualitative first and I want to get a general sense of what's going on. And then with that information, I want to develop my study, my quantitative study uh, and, and go from there. And then vice versa, you know, maybe I do a survey first, I collect a bunch of quantitative data, and then I want to take a deeper dive by interviewing some participants about their experiences and, and having them talk about their lived experiences or observe them in some way. So that's probably more common to go from quantitative to qualitative, but that's, that's what I got. Awesome. Awesome. So again, as a scientist, I, I'm hearing a lot of familiar words, which makes me very comfortable, like null hypothesis, case study. Uh, 
but again, it sounds like there's a lot to consider here. So Violet, I'm wondering, uh, can you expand on any of that a little bit? Are there other things that we could should consider when constructing a study, either before or after, you know, data collection? Yes, and Eric covered a lot in the previous question. So for instance, he said, you know, like start, starting with a significant research problem, uh, which you, you get from the literature, and you can you could also be testing a theory because maybe like you want a, te- a theory has been tested maybe in medicine and you want to test it in a different uh, field, and then you could also uh, to extend pre- previous research. So you want to build on to what other people have done. So you're looking at what what you want to a gap that you want to to f- uh, to fill in your in in your specific area. Then you specify the spe- uh, you know the purpose of the study. Uh, then uh, just to uh, add on to, uh, I, I recovered the, uh, well the, you know, the, the different research methods and also some of the considerations are doing an IRB. So it doesn't mean that if it's education research, you're not, you know, you're not dealing with patients or something. You still need to apply for IRB and get approved. Even if you're not uh, working with participants uh, directly, you, uh, maybe you need, an, uh, you need an exemption from the IRB. Okay, then the sample you're using, you have to consider that how many people are will include in your sample. So if you're doing like a quantitative study, you need to have a specific number of people to meet, uh, you know, for power analysis. So if you're doing like maybe a T-test, you might need like 100 uh, participants for your study to have enough power. Then also, you, okay, so you consider your sampling strategy. If you're doing qualitative research, how are you going to sample your participants? Is it a purposive sampling? Or are you, do, you using like snowball sampling? Then also a big thing is uh, instruments for the, uh, that you're using for the quantitative research. You, have to, you need to use reliable and valid instruments. Uh, like we covered in, the pre- in our previous um, question, the main things that are education research uh, measures are latent var- constructs. For instance, you cannot measure motivation uh, directly. So you need to use a validated instrument that has been validated to, me- to measure motivation. Something like self-efficacy, it's not something that is tangible. So it's really important to use instruments that have been uh, validated in the, in, in the literature. Then some other things like after the post-consideration is, you know, like report how you report your data, and then dis- dissemination for publication. Then after that, you also think about how are you going maybe to re- extend this data in other settings or in other populations to build on the knowledge that you've, uh, you've created. So, Violet, you, you mentioned an interesting term, and because I'm a novice in the education research space, I was wondering if I'd ask you to um, maybe describe what an instrument is. I think you gave a good explanation of how to use it and some of them that exist. But for someone who's not familiar with the education research space, what is an instrument uh, in particular? For um, quantitative research, an instrument is a, like a set of questions that has been validated in the literature to measure a certain construct. For instance, mo- like motivation. So if you want to measure motivation in your class, uh, there's a you can find an instrument that has been validated. Maybe it has like 30 questions that are measuring students' motivation in the, in, in the classroom. So it's important that you find an instrument that has, has been validated. And, and validation in, in, in involves measuring that it has construct validity, where it's measuring what it's supposed to measure. It has content validity. So then it also has to be reliable. And reliability means you get similar results if you use it in different settings. 
So that instrument has to be have used constantly and you have like maybe a good val uh, validated instrument can have like an alpha, like a Cronbach's alpha of over above uh, 0.8. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think the term instrument really hits it right on the head about what it's used for and how it works. It's an instrument that we can use in education research based off of everything that you said that's already been vetted. So we don't have to come up with valid forms of questionnaires every time we want to do education research. Yes. And let me just also add to that. So other people also do a study to create an instrument and to validate the instrument. So that's also another uh, research study that you can do, creating an instrument and testing it out to validate. So that's a, a valid study. I feel like that's a, we could get into a whole nother conversation going down that uh, path. Uh, so I want to talk about something else, uh, kind of shifting gears from the quantitative side, moving maybe a bit more to the qualitative side or just more uh, broad in general. How critical is perspective when we're talking about doing these studies? Uh, like, for example, having global perspective or how individuals interpret questions and data. Eric, can you speak to the power of perspective in education research? Yeah, it's uh, highly influential. Uh, you know, just real quick, I wanted to touch on some of the points about the qualitative research and inquiry. You know, some of the times we, as a qualitative researcher, I might sort of cringe at terms, terms like uh, reliability or rigor or things like that. We tend to focus more on credibility, trustworthiness, um, things like that. Uh, so, you know, there's you know, I, I completely agree with Violet, you know, in terms of using valid instruments to test studies, it saves a lot of time, effort and work. But, you know, I think what's in sort of, sort of springboarding into this question is what's most important in a qualitative study is really the researcher reflecting on themselves in the process. You know, a qualitative researcher is a part of the study and there are different worldviews that really influence some of the decisions that you're going to make along the way. So some might say, you know, that the goal of this process is to eliminate me. I'm the researcher. I just want to observe. You know, I have bias. I need to get it out. But then some people will say, there's just no way that you can actually do that, right? So, so there's different worldviews that influence how we approach something. So, you know, the, they might be interpretive frameworks. So you might say that uh, somebody might have a post-positivism, post-positivism, or post, you know, sort of, that they had a prior quantitative research training, right? They're really interested in cause and effect, right? And if they see the world in that way, then they might construct a study to try to find cause and effect. If you're a social constructivist, you know, you might have recognition that you're at least involved in the study some way because you're a person, you're a part of it, and that, you know, participation and constructs meaning, right? In your account of the process. And, you know, there's different things. There's transformative frameworks, there's uh, postmodern perspectives, uh, pragmatism, you know, feminist, there's critical theory, critical race theory, queer theory. I mean, these are just interpretive frameworks that really influence a lot of the decisions that we're going to make along the way, including how we discuss our findings with others. And, you know, there's for instance, you know, phenomenology can be very heavy in terms of a read, can be very heavy lift. And some people just don't have the time for it. They, you know, I want to know 
the intro methods, results, analysis, discussion. Give it to me in one sentence blurb at the top of the manuscript because I'm not going to read all 10 pages, right? And keep it moving, right? Or a phenomenologist might write a a book. (laughs) You have to kind of read through it and go through their journey with them. So, you know, it's different strokes for different folks, I guess. But I think that all of that really influences how, how and what we study and why. Agreed. I think it's important to kind of go back to that previous question again. It sounds like perspective needs to be a pre-consideration and post-consideration while you're constructing the study and interpreting the data for all the points that you mentioned. So perspective is powerful when it comes to education research. Absolutely. So with that, I know we've covered some of these things, but I want to explicitly focus on the challenges that education-based research faces. So uh, Violet, outside of what we've discussed already, are there any other challenges that someone coming into this field would want to know about before they start constructing a study? What are some challenges behind education-based research? So one of the one things I could I, I can add uh, is uh, like uh, making sure the study procedures are consistent. So like uh, when when the procedures are vary you, you introduce bias just like uh, Eric has uh, explained in the other uh, question for qualitative research you the researcher is the instrument because you're the one reading you know if you're doing interviews you're the one reading out the you know the interview questions to the participant it's important that you're consistently reading the questions and asking the same questions for everyone otherwise you'll introduce bias and then you may not be able to compare data for analysis then the other thing is also like I we discussed before you're measuring latent variables and like if at times you may not find an instrument that is valid for the construct that you want to measure so that means you maybe you need to start from scratch to to develop an instrument so that and then for and another one is like for instance if you're doing like a like you're doing a study with your students, like maybe a simulation and you're using like standardized patients. You know, like if they're acting, they're doing, it's hard for them to be consistent for like maybe 10 students because, you know, they're human. So just making, I think, consistency of our procedures is a, a big challenge. Wonderful. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I was just thinking about the human factor in education research and how it's probably one of the hardest fields to study because of that. Our sample variability is is the most variable, in my opinion. Um, thank you so much. Uh, now I want to kind of zoom out from the topic that we've been discussing and focus on what outcomes we expect from education research. How does it benefit the field of education? Eric, can you give your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. The first thing that comes to mind um, is that education research is messy, right? It's not as clean cut as some people would like. And it's because of what we were just talking about, the human factor, right? And because of that, it's kind of, you know, it's just hard to control. So, you know, how does this research benefit the field? I think it's just like any other field of study, right? The more that we learn, the more we know. you know, and it's the more we can try different things. Some things might help us develop more efficiencies. Um, some things might influence different experiences in different ways. You know, in terms of like paradigm shifts and stuff like that, if enough people can get behind it, the idea, they agree, then it seems to, you know, sort of move, get get things moving in a certain direction when it comes to educational research. 
you know, um, but the biggest breakthroughs when it comes to educational research is, is that for me is when educational myths are debunked, right? That's the big breakthrough because what will happen is somebody will get an idea and enough people will say, you know, that makes sense. I get that. You know, maybe like the concept of digital natives versus digital immigrants, right? Anybody born before 1985 cannot handle a computer as well as somebody born after it. Right. And you look at that and on the surface, you're like, ah, it kind of makes sense. I, you know, the younger kids in the generation can handle the newfangled gadgets quicker than we can. Right. But then you debunk it with the with the educational research and you say, that's just not true. Right. It's like anything that we learn that anybody can do it and that, you know, age might not influence or, you know, stuff like learning styles, things like that. When those myths are debunked, that is a breakthrough in educational research, in my opinion. Awesome. So with that being said, now that we've kind of covered the, I won't say we've climbed the whole mountain, but we've definitely started getting up there. Uh, Violent, if someone wanted to start research in this area, um, where should they, where should they start reading? What, uh, what are some good resources for them? And Eric mentioned quite a few earlier on, and the books by John Cresswell, I think he's like the, maybe, is it grandfather or father of educational research? He, he has like over 40, I think over 40 books. So he has a book on just like planning, conducting, and evaluating quantita- quantitative and qualitative research. Then there's a book about research designs, like Eric mentioned the different research designs. So he has a book on all the research designs. Then he has a he has books on just qualitative designs, books on mi- mixed methods designs, and books on quantitative. So that John Cresswell is the where to start. <laughs> Great, wonderful. So the last question that I always like to pose to my guests is, what do you think is moving the needle? What is changing the landscape of teaching? So this is for both of you. Okay, let me go fast. Maybe this is not moving the needle in a big way right now, but in the future, I, I see like uh, how artificial intelligence will impact uh, uh, teaching and learning. So quite a few questions were raised recently about how ed- educators will embrace or not embrace chat GPT, so which has been like uh, a, a topic of discussion. And I, I see a lot of research coming out of this topic. And, you know, just to build off of what Violet said, you know, the... What's changing the landscape of teaching is what is ever changing in the landscape of students in some ways, right? So, you know, we, we talk about the high flex stuff, um, but really, you know, I'd say since kind of 2020, right, it was probably going to be a big turning point for a lot of different reasons in the history books of, you know, the 3000s or whatever, because, you know, it, this sort of changing nature of work school, study, like work-life balance, things like that, those are really influencing, um, you know, the everyday. And, you know, it's influencing, um, you know, how we come to work. You know, maybe we talk about flexible and remote schedules and work from home and telecommuting, whatever you want to call it. Uh, The same goes for the students that are studying, you know, and typically, you know, we, we always, we hope that the students drive what we're delivering for them. The students are the ultimate customer of ours, right? So we want to give them, we want to meet them where they are. We want to give them what they need in the moment. So, you know, this idea of high flex or whatever, being more flexible with our instruction, 
is interesting, you know, and I, how we approach um, all these different variations, right? So to me, I think where this where it's kind of moving the needle a little bit, because I'm a diehard asynchronous distance education online learner, right? I can do it on my own time, you know. I don't need the classroom experience, you know, and, and that might be different than some. But for me, what's moving the needle a little bit there is this blend of asynchronous and synchronous online learning. So traditionally, asynchronous online course, right, you don't have any real-time connection for the most part. You know, I'd say historically speaking, it's always been the instructor will just post a message, right, and you never really online at the same time. I remember back in the day they used to have a chat forum for like AIM style chat and nobody would ever be online at the same time. So it was kind of a pointless thing. But now, I think because of what's happened in the you know outside world, let's say, where people are using t technologies like Zoom more frequently and regularly, it's more comfortable, it's more commonplace to say, hey, let's just have a Zoom meeting on Wednesday it's from 7 to 9 or whatever it is, or 6 to 7, to, to really sort of touch base with the online student. And I think that's cool. And I, I think that however we kind of find those blends is going to be interesting, to say the least, because... All we know in terms of the research space is very much dedicated to this distinction between asynchronous and synchronous, right? And when you start mixing those two, it's going to mix the results. And I think that'll be very interesting moving forward. Agreed. But I think you, you, you really hit the nail on the head there with it. It's about the, the students. And as the students change, that's really going to affect how education changes. And so... This was a really exciting topic. Thank you, Dr. Kulo and Dr. Belt, for sharing your expertise today. Uh, I we still have some mountain to climb, but for now, I just want to say thank you so much for being part of the episode today. Thank you, Dr. Riley. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.